Well, good morning, friends. Are we awake? Oh, wow. Well, you are more awake than I am. That's great. Maybe because this is, I think this is number four for me in three days. How many of you, is your first time um, that I'm getting to see your faces? You've never been to anything that I've said or done before. Okay. How many of you, this is, um, you were at the main stage? Okay. Okay. Wow. How many of you were at yesterday's devotional? Okay. Keep your hands up. People were at yesterday's devotional and at the main stage. Put your hands up. How many of you were at the talk on sexuality out of this crew as well? Okay, so this is number four for many. Is this, how, many is this, how many of you this is number four? Okay, this is getting a little creepy here, guys. Okay, um, no, I'm totally joking. Good to see you. If you've come and I haven't scared you away yet, I'll take it. Um, I appreciate that. My name is Alicia, as you have heard many times. And I think today I'm doing uh, Why I'm Not an Atheist on the, at the Woods at 2 o'clock. And as well as tomorrow, I'm doing why isn't God more obvious in the woods at 2 o'clock? Like, why is he so hidden? All these kind of things. Why not just show yourself? So hopefully I'll continue to see you guys there. Um, but today we're going to do something that I think is really fun. I, uh, is you, if you were here yesterday, you heard me talk a bit about the Old Testament. Who was here yesterday? Sorry. Okay, good. So I got a good crew that was here yesterday. I love the OT. And the reason why I love the OT is because it makes sense of the New Testament. And so today we're going to look at a really popular passage that we quote all the time, but be able to kind of look at it through the perspective of somebody who in that time frame would have been reading it in a certain lens. So as, as Christians who have the full bo- the Bible at our disposal in 2022, we have some advantages here. We have commentaries on things that have been written. We have dictionaries and maps and all of these resources that we can go back into the text and look at to get further understanding of what happened in the text. But the disadvantage that we have is that we tend to read the Bible through, or through the lens of people who've already seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I can't blame us for that. We know about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we read that um, almost as if we read into certain stories and certain things as if they knew what we knew. Now, there was definitely foreshadowing. People knew of somebody coming in the New Testament, but they didn't have the full breadth of what we have. And so a lot of people just think, well, if I just want to learn about Jesus, then I'm just going to start at Matthew 1. That's where the story of Jesus starts. And so it's almost as if we go to the library and we take a book off the shelf and it's got 16 chapters and we read, we start reading at chapter 11. And we say, I don't need to read chapters 1 through 10. I already know what they say. Just because I'm reading at chapter 11, I know what they say without even reading them. And we assume that if we start at chapter 11, then 11 through 16 are going to make sense. And we do that with the Bible. We start at Matthew 1 and think, if we just start there and read about Jesus, oh, that's all we really, really need. But here is the thing, friends. If you don't read the Old Testament, you will not understand the full story of Jesus. And the reason is, is the Old Testament is leading up to it. It's got all of these foreshadowings, all these prophecies, all of these things that are pointing to this moment in time that's going to come with Jesus. So you will understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, sure, but you will be missing other important aspects of his life and what he came and did. So that's why yesterday we looked at the story of the sacrifice of Isaac and understanding it through what it's pointing towards in the New Testament. 
Today we're going to take a very popular uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at it in its proper context first and then see what we can glean from it. So with that said, I'm going to actually do a bit of a history lesson with you. If I have any Bible history nerds, which is kind of what I am, do I have a few out there? Yes. Okay. So for the Bible history nerds, some of this stuff actually might already be um, familiar, but we're going to talk about some of this really cool stuff. And the first thing, sorry, I've got wind issues. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is something called uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, yesterday I talked about Abraham and his son Isaac, and many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah. God had promised Abraham that his descendants will be actually he made the promise to Abraham and Sarah. That's an important distinction because within Islam, um, they would say that Ishmael was the promised son of Abraham and it wasn't Isaac. But the reality is that doesn't make any sense when the, uh, the text makes, God makes the covenant promise to Abraham and Sarah. So it is their heir. But Muslims trace their lineage through Ishmael, and they call Abraham their father, saying Ishmael, because he was born biologically first, is the promised one. So it's important for us to note that the promise was made to Abraham and Sarah, that they would have a, they would have a child. Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars, um, all the nations would be blessed through him, and that he would be the father of many nations. And, of course, he was promised an heir as well. And Abraham, when he first got the covenant from God, couldn't understand how he would be the father of many nations when he had no children. And then, of course, comes along Isaac. Secondly, we have another covenant. There's many more covenants, but I'm just going through two. Something called the Davidic Covenant that came through David. Many of you are familiar with King David. We should be. Um, I talked about it from the main stage, how we have evidence for the existence of David outside of the Bible, which is pretty great. And God made a covenant with King David as well. And he said that your throne, your kingdom will last forever, which is an interesting statement because we all know that David died, right? He didn't live eternally. He's not still alive. So how was it that his throne was going to, or his kingdom was going to live forever. It would never end. In other words, what God was saying to him is that there will be a godly seed, a godly king, excuse me, or a seed that will come from David's bloodline. And it's through this seed that his kingdom will never end. All right, let's go a little bit further into history. King Solomon David's son was a great wise man, did a lot of really, really good things, but he also did some things that weren't great, okay? And when he was king, in this, in this uh, area where they lived, you have a northern kingdom. And in this northern area, King Solomon subjected to these people up here to unpaid labor for the massive building projects that he was undertaking. And he really ticked off many of the people there for that reason, because who wants to work with unpaid labor? Anyways, he dies. His son, Rehoboam, takes over as king, and he wants these northern people to like him. So he goes up there, and, and they said, look, we'll support you as king as long as you lighten all these heavy taxes and the labor burdens that your father put on us. Rehoboam didn't listen. He got bad counsel. He did not listen, and he decided against them. And so essentially, they... Uh, they fight back against him, kill one of the people that he sent, and the kingdom splits. 
This is a big important piece within within uh, biblical history. Is we is it shifts it splits into two different kingdoms: the Israelite kingdom to the north, with its capital Samaria, and the Judah kingdom in the south, with its capital Jerusalem. They have two different kings. Rehoboam governs Israel and the capital city Samaria in the north, and Jeroboam governs. Um, excuse me, I got that backwards. Israel is governed in Samaria by Jeroboam in the north, and in the south is Judah with the capital of Jerusalem, and it's governed by Rehoboam. We have a divided nation just like that of God's people. Now, the, the split is bad. Okay, these are not very big countries. These are not countries the size of America or Russia. This this. This tiny, these split countries essentially are also on major sea and trade routes. And they were very small, about the size of Connecticut. So because they were on major trade routes, everybody wanted to conquer them so that they didn't have to go through their land in order to get to where they wanted to get through. And so without the protections from God due to their misbehavior and their turning against God, they really didn't stand a chance. And so in 722... The Assyrian Empire comes in and conquers the northern kingdom. Okay? Samaria, the capital city, falls. And the way that Assyria comes in and, and attacks a place is they like to essentially dissolve the culture of the place. So you have God's Jewish people living in this northern kingdom. And Assyria brings their people in. And takes some of the Jewish people there out. Leaves some of them there, but takes some of them out. So now, this northern kingdom, which was all Jewish, is now a mixture of Assyrian and Jews. And of course, they start to marry. And now when they marry, if you understand something about Judaism, Judaism is a blood religion. In other words, you trace your bloodline. It's why you meet people who say, I am Jewish by blood, but maybe atheistic or new age by nature or even Christian messianic Jews, right? So they have Jewish bloodline, but they hold to a different belief because you can do that within Judaism because you're, it's tied in with the bloodline. And so now you've got this capital Samaria that has some Jewish people and some Assyrians, these foreigners, and of course they start to marry and now the bloodline is half tainted, there's some Jewish bloodline in the kids and some Assyrian bloodline in the kids, which is why when you fast forward to New Testament, you see why the people there didn't respect the Sumerians because they weren't 100% Jewish. They had this mixture bloodline within them. Regardless, so this happens. Now, the southern kingdom, of course, sees all of this, and they see what happened to the northern kingdom who disobeyed God and how they were conquered. And so they were, they were terrified. And now we go and enter into the book of Isaiah. Now Isaiah enters into the picture. Isaiah is living in the south that hasn't been conquered yet, the southern kingdom of Judah. And while people there are scared because they saw what happened to their people in the north, Isaiah doesn't have much better news for them. He's like, guys, it's coming our way too. As a prophet who bears bad news, which a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament did, this is coming our way. In, 520, in Isaiah 5.24, he says, because of the oppression that they've ignored and because of the idolatry and the fact they rejected God, 
they too are going to be taken over. And while Isaiah dies before this actually happens in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire comes in and takes over the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem finally falls. It took 20 or so years, 30 or so years. But Jerusalem, the capital city of the south, finally falls in 586. The temple is destroyed by Babylon. The Jewish temple, which you see later on rebuilt from the time of Jesus. But the temple was destroyed by Babylon. It was, they let them rebuild it about 60 or so years later. Herod the Great made it even bigger and expanded it. And then you see Jesus at the temple. That's the temple that Jesus walked into. But that temple that existed then in Jerusalem is destroyed. And so when Isaiah 9 is happening, these Jews only know that it's coming their way. It hasn't happened yet. The conquering of Babylon hasn't happened yet. So they're shaken and they're nervous. And so Isaiah says to them in chapter 9, remember the covenants that God has made. And let's go ahead and start reading Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now that you understand all that, now you can read these passages through the lens of what these people were thinking. Somebody's coming to conquer me. We've disobeyed God. We've dishonored him. We've ignored oppression, and we're about to be conquered. At some point, we just don't know when. And now we will read these passages. So Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the verse we know so well. This is the context in which they read that verse. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, a very popular verse that we quote all the time um, at Christmas for obvious reasons, because we see that's talking about Jesus. They don't see it quite like that at that point. What Isaiah is trying to instill in them is that, look, there is hope that while you have turned your backs on God, he has remembered his covenant to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations and all the nations will be blessed. And he's remembered that his throne will last forever was the covenant that he said to David. 
So Isaiah is reminding them of these things, that he still remembers his people. Now, when they read this, here's what they would have understood, that there is a coming of a leader. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. They understand that there is going to be a leader, but they're thinking, once again, we're about to be conquered. Somebody's going to come in and conquer us. So this person is going to free us from any kind of conquering. They're going to restore national sovereignty, and they're going to bring us back to the good old days where, under David where they prospered and lived in obedience to God. And so this prophecy stuck in their mind as they waited for a warrior or they waited for a deliverer to free them from all of this earthly struggles and problems that they had. And I don't really blame them for that because in times past, they knew a king was sent from God with two signs. The first sign was that he was genealogically, in other words, he was through the bloodline. They knew the genealogy had to matter for this king. He wasn't, couldn't be an outsider. He had to come through the bloodline of Judaism, of the Jewish people. And the second thing for this king is that this king would have been affirmed through the various prophets. So there was an external affirmation that this king was actually from God. So they did what they always did. They looked for these two signs, Jewish blood and affirmation from a prophet. And so they waited and waited. But then they got conquered by Babylon. God must have forgotten his covenant. God was never really trying to, to follow his covenants. He let us be conquered and destroyed. Where, where is this king? Fast forward with me to the book of Matthew. I know oftentimes when we, when we see these uh, books in the New Testament, we read like these long genealogies and we're like, yeah, we'll just skip that. <laughs> skip over those sections, right? We don't want to read these long genealogies of things. They are just irrelevant. All these names we can't pronounce. But the reality is, guys, is Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. He was trying to communicate something to his Jewish audience. And in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is Matthew doing? We skip this all the time. The very first verse, we don't need this. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew then proceeds to write the rest of the genealogy, which we're like, whatever, who cares? Guys, this was important. Because what did we just say a king would have to do? He would have to come through a Jewish bloodline so his parental heritage mattered and he would need to be affirmed by the prophets. So Matthew starts off by saying, let me give you his genealogy. It is intentional that these things are there. And we know this because we've just looked at what was required in the Old Testament for this new king. When we don't know that, we skip over the genealogies because we think it's useless. But Matthew is establishing that here is this king. Now, like you said, or like I said, where's the prophet, though? Right? We got the genealogy down, part down, and you read it, and it goes, and you see this is why it's key that Jesus, um, that, that Jesus and, and Joseph are related. So many people will ask me, Alicia, Jesus... Um, 
Mary, Jesus' mother, his bloodline, she is not part of David's lineage. Remember, the covenant to David was that your kingdom will last forever. There's going to be a godly seed through you, a godly king or seed coming through you. Mary is not in that lineage. She is not in the direct lineage of David. So then the Bible messed up. But through adoption, Jesus is adopted into the bloodline of David through Joseph, because Joseph was in the bloodline of David. And that's why Matthew establishes that. If you read through chapter 1, you will see that Matthew will land on Joseph. He's establishing Jesus as through the bloodline of David, through adoption. We know as believers that we are adopted into this beautiful body and body of Christ and relationship with God. And we see it there with Jesus. So we have now established that he is in the bloodline, but where's the prophet? We know the second thing has to be, has to be affirmed by the prophet. Well, let's go forward. In those days, it says in John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter three, Matthew doesn't take very long to get to the second thing. In Matthew chapter three, verse one, it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. In other words, Isaiah, or, or John the Baptist is doing the second part, the prophet affirming that this is the one from God spoken of in the prophet it put, spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, you've been waiting hundreds of years, and the time is now. We've got the genealogy of Jesus that matches. We've got the affirmation by, from, the prophet, or from the prophet that he is the one, he is the king, and we've only gotten to Matthew chapter 3. It's established. It may have taken over 500 years, but God did show up for his people. He did send a king for his people. And that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all the nations will be blessed through him. God didn't fail. He kept his covenant with him. They had to wait, though. They really had to wait. If any of you um, have ever read the book of Lamentations, right? Most people don't. They kind of think of it as like a flyover book. <laughs> like, why would we want to spend time in Lamentations? But Lamentations was written after Babylon did end up conquering the southern kingdom of Judah. So while they're conquered, they're waiting for the king. It didn't happen. Babylon comes, conquers them. And during this time of Lamentations, they're writing this. It says, my eyes fail from weeping. This is uh, Lamentations 2. Verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Verses 13, later on, talk about what can I say for you? With what can I compare you? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Look, Lord, and consider whom you've ever treated like this. Should women eat their offspring? The children they've cared for? 
Should the priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary, Lord? So you see that these people are wrestling. They are wrestling with, where are you, God? You haven't shown up. You promised these things and you didn't show up. And look at the torment that we're going through. Look at what we're dealing with. And I can understand people don't want to read Lamentation because it doesn't seem very exciting so far, does it? But if you don't finish it, you'll be missing out on some great things. Because in verse 19, in the middle of the book of Lamentations, it says this. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In the midst of them feeling abandoned by God, in the midst of them feeling like God has forgotten their covenants and they're under oppression by another empire, this is what they write. The song that we sang growing up was the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy shall never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How many of you remember that song? That comes straight out of Lamentations 3. Guys, I know there's times when we may feel like God has forgotten his promises to us or maybe things that he showed us or he's abandoned us or he's failed us. But God does not go back on things. We just may have to wait for it. And it may not be what we thought it was. They were expecting an earthly king to save them from this world out here. Instead, they got a divine king to save them from the world in here. God showed up. And he, he filled his covenants and his promises that this person would come through the lineage of Abraham and David. And so in the New Testament, friends, we are told that Jesus says, I will be with you always. We are told in Hebrews that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So I don't know where we are today with, with, with things in our life. I don't know where we, where we are, how many of us feel abandoned by God or feel like God just left us and we are all, we are all alone. But let this story encourage you. Now that you've read it through their lens and understand how they would have understood that popular passage in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that God didn't go back on what he said. So be encouraged today, friends. Stand today. They know God, it may come, he will come, but you may have to wait longer than you wanted. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.